All right, well, let's, let's open in prayer. Father, we're grateful for a new year and grateful for new beginnings. Um, I do pray, Lord, that this uh, first Sunday of the new year, that you would have your way here at Sugarland Bible Church. You would use the teaching of your word today to challenge us as your people to be what you would desire us to be in the new year. We are very dependent, Lord, very needy for many things, one of which is the ministry of the Spirit of God of illumination whereby we can understand eternal things. And so in preparation for that ministry, we're going to just take a couple of moments of silence to do personal business with you so that we can receive uh, fully from you this morning. We're thankful, Lord, for the promise of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, which doesn't restore our position, but it can, if need be, restore broken fellowship. We're thankful, Lord, for the comprehensiveness of our provision that you've given us in Christ Jesus. I pray you'll be with us on this very special Sunday the first Sunday of the month as we partake of the Lord's table and enjoy the fellowship meal together. And I ask all of these things in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right. Well, if you can locate in your Bibles, Second Thessalonians. Chapter 2 and verse 4. In the Sunday school hour, we're continuing our verse by verse teaching through the book of 2 Thessalonians. And as you know, the Apostle Paul has been pushed out of Thessalonica which is there up north. Um, He's been pushed down south into Corinth. And he was basically pushed out of Thessalonica after having planted the church there in Thessalonica. So it's when he gets down into Corinth that he discovers a problem concerning the church that he planted. And the problem is verse 2. I mean, the problem isn't verse 2. The problem is described in verse 2. That might be a better way of saying it. Verse 2 of 2 Thessalonians 2 says that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by spirit or message or letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord, which is the tribulation period, uh, has come. So Paul had taught them that they were in the church age and the next event on the prophetic horizon is the rapture. But here comes this forged letter saying, you actually missed the rapture. (laughs) 
and you're in the tribulation period itself. Which, if true, if that forged letter was true, it would have discredited Paul's whole ministry because he taught them the opposite. So what Paul does in verses 3 through 12 is he lays out the criteria for being in the day of the Lord. And notice I said criteria, plural, not criterion, one, because there's at least five things that have to happen before anybody can say we are in the tribulation period. So the first one we've dealt with in depth, it's the departure. And we tried to take the position there that the departure, the Greek word apostasia, is a synonym for the rapture. Uh, We have some booklets on the table inside our sanctuary. If you want a booklet that I wrote on that, help yourself to it. The second criteria is the advent of the lawless one, the Antichrist. And Paul's point in rehearsing all of this information is to show them you haven't seen any of these things. So therefore, you're not in the day of the Lord. You're not in the tribulation period. So you haven't seen the rapture because you're still here. And you haven't seen the advent of the lawless one in the temple. And he starts to talk that way in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4, where he says, Who opposes and exalts himself, that's the Antichrist, above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. And you should underline temple there if you're an underliner. Uh, It's the Greek word naos displaying himself as being God. And Paul, everybody concurs, is referring to something that Daniel predicted in Daniel 9.27, where Daniel in chapter 9, verse 27, outlined the tribulation period. And Daniel said, um, but in the middle of the week, he, Antichrist, in other words, will put a stop to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. So Daniel 9.27 that Paul is referring backwards to lays out the chronology of the tribulation period. It's going to be seven years. He tells you what starts it, a peace treaty of some kind between the Antichrist and unbelieving Israel. He tells you what's going to happen at the end of it, the return of Jesus Christ to the earth, which is an event different than the rapture. And then he tells you what's going to happen right in the middle. There's going to be this desecration of the temple. Now, fortunately, um, we're not left to our own devices to figure out what the desecration of the temple is which takes place at the midpoint. Because Daniel 11 and verse 31 has already used that terminology with respect to someone who's already showed up in world history, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, who around 164, 167-ish, give or take, B.C., he went into the Jewish temple. He desecrated it. 
he set up a pagan image in the temple of Zeus. Um, he told the Jews, you know, you can't offer sacrifices in here anymore. This would be the temple that Israel had rebuilt following the 70-year captivity. He banned things that were uh, germane to the Jewish religion, like circumcision and the reading of Talmud, reading of prayer books, reading of Torah, those kinds of things, banned Jewish holidays. And he was, against all odds, miraculously overthrown by the Maccabean revolt. And we've gone into a little bit of detail describing all of those things yet past. But if you can understand what happened yet past, you can understand what's going to happen yet future, because Daniel takes the same terminology and applies it to the future Antichrist. So we are reminded of the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 9. It says, that which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Uh, Biblically speaking, history is cyclical. What Antiochus did on a smaller stage will be replicated by Antichrist, yet future, on a global stage, on a world stage. And it's sort of interesting that when Paul makes these predictions, the Jewish temple was still functioning and alive and well. Uh, That temple would not be destroyed until A.D. 70. And this is one of Paul's earliest letters. It's only his third letter that he's writing. Uh, The year is A.D. 51. Uh, that temple was still functioning, wouldn't be destroyed for another little less than two decades. And Paul's point as he's writing to the Thessalonians is he's saying none of these things have happened in that temple. You haven't seen an antichrist in the temple. Uh, you haven't seen him replicating what Antiochus did in that temple. So you're not in the day of the Lord. So the big question here, there's a lot of big questions here. That's why we're taking so much time to go through this. Is when he says temple, what temple is he talking about? Because we're understanding these prophecies as something yet future. And ever since the temple, now that would be temple number two, was destroyed by Titus of Rome in AD 70, The Jews, from that point in time, A.D. 70, about 20 years after the book of Thessalonians or the Thessalonian books were written, have not had a temple. And yet prophecy indicates that the Antichrist is going to desecrate the Jewish temple. So a prerequisite for that is obviously the temple has to be rebuilt, right? If it hasn't existed for 2,000 years... And the Antichrist never showed up in temple number two. And the nation of Israel for 2,000 years hasn't had a temple. Then the issue is, well, there's got to at some point be a third temple. And so this is what makes current events such an interesting thing to watch. Because God in our general time period is putting the pieces together. He's setting the stage for the fulfillment of this prophecy 
of the Antichrist midway through the tribulation period desecrating the Jewish temple. So you, you, you ask yourself, well, what are some things that have to happen for this prophecy to be fulfilled? It's a lot like um, going to a basketball game. I mean, when you go to a basketball game and watch a game, the game doesn't just happen. The whole stage is set beforehand. I mean, the teams have to get there, right? And uh, someone has to sweep the gym floor. Someone has to pull out the bleachers. The teams have to go through their warm-up drills. Uh, the The stadium has to fill up with spectators. Someone probably has to start selling popcorn, among other things. And only when you see all those things starting to happen... Um, can you say a basketball game is ready to start? So, so we're, what, what's happening right now is we are not in the basketball game. I mean, people call me up a lot, believe it or not, and say, where are we in the book of Revelation right now? And I'm, I'm thinking of it in basketball terms. They want me to say we're in the first quarter, second half, something like that. We're at halftime. Well, the truth is we're not in any of it. Okay, We're not in the book of Revelation right now. What we're in is a season, and I don't know how long this season will last for, but we're in a season where the stage is being set. And so one of the things that has to be put in motion is a rebuilt Jewish temple to fulfill 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. And all of God's prophecies happen literally. So we expect a literal fulfillment of these prophecies, just like we would any other prophecy. So what has to be put in motion for this third temple? Well, I I just have three things. I recommend a book, uh, Ready to Rebuild. It's a little dated, but it still has some good information in it by Thomas Ice and Randall Price. When Thomas Ice promotes the book, he says, I'm Ice without the the PR. So ice and price ready to rebuild. But one of the things that has to be put in place is you have to have a rebirth of the nation of Israel. And we're seeing that happen. Their war of independence happened in 1948. They became a nation again after 2,000 years of global dispersion. And Jews from all over the world are recycling back into their ancient homeland. In fact, there's a, there's a prophecy in the book of Zechariah, I think it is. I want to say chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, right in there. It says, when God regathers the Jews in the end times, they're going to come from the east and the west. And it's often been sort of a struggle to figure out why Jews would come from the west. Because the west would represent, you know, the United States of America. Jews have been free to worship as they choose here since our country's inception, going back to George Washington and what he said to the Toro Synagogue uh, all the way back, I think, in 1789, right, right in that time period. So Jews have always been made comfortable here, worship here as you want, so why would you want to leave the United States of America? I've always wondered, well, how are they going to be regathered from the West? And since the events of October the 7th, I've sort of stopped wondering because of the irrational Jew hatred, anti-Semitism that's now sweeping through our universities. 
to the point where it's become a public spectacle, where the current president of Harvard was fired. Um, She claims it was racism, but no, the reason you were fired, in addition to plagiarism, which we won't go into here, but in addition to that is you were asked a question in a congressional hearing I can't remember if it was a House hearing or a Senate hearing. I think it was a House hearing. Does Do statements calling for the eradication of the Jewish nation, that's the question, do statements calling from the, for the eradication of the Jewish nation violate your code of conduct at Harvard University? Now, this is Harvard University. I think MIT president was questioned on this. Other leading schools were questioned on this. And this is the academic (laughs) part of our country where free speech is regulated constantly. You know, they have these, you know, concepts of don't trigger somebody because you use too much free speech. Um, They have these safe zones where if you happen to hear an idea that you disagree with, you can go in your little bubble and no one can ever disturb your worldview again. You know, I mean, that's kind of the state of these schools. It's it's really sad to watch. So what she says, and you probably heard this on the news, is she says, well, eradication of the Jews, um, would a statement calling for the eradication of the Jews or the genocide of the Jews, does that violate your code of conduct? And she says, well, it depends on the context. Whereas we know that if a conservative was saying anything against the trans lifestyle, right? We know exactly how that would end, right? Uh, that conservative's perspective would be immediately curtailed. But for some reason at these universities that curb free speech everywhere, being in favor of genocide against the Jewish people is okay. So my point is the country, just like God said it would, He said all the nations would turn against Israel in the last days. Our nation, very, very sadly, is doing that. The I think it was Abraham Lincoln who said the philosophy of the schoolhouse in one generation will be the philosophy of government in the next generation. That's why you can't ignore what's going on at these universities. So... Suddenly these universities, because of the events of October 7th, have become inflamed with anti-Semitism. And as I'm watching this happen in my country, I'm saying, oh my, my goodness, this is what has to happen in order for the Jews to flee the West, not just the East, but flee the West back into their ancient homeland. And so God, even though these things are ugly for us to watch, he's using all of these things to fulfill his ancient prophecies in his word of the regathering of the Jews from every nation in the last days. So you can't have a temple unless you have a reborn state of Israel because only the Jews living in that land would want the temple. And that process is happening now. The second thing that's happening is as Israel is being regathered, she is, she is interested in a desire for peace. She has expressed her desire to live at peace with her neighbors. 
None of her neighbors, with the exception of Egypt in the late 70s and Jordan, her adjacent neighbor there to the east in 1994, have ever expressed any kind of desire to live in peace with her neighbors. And yet tiny Israel has. So what you're hearing on the news all of the time is Israel is occupying foreign land. Israel is the oppressor. And all you have to do is take a little geography lesson to undo a lot of that propaganda. That green area represents Islamic countries that want to drive Israel into the Mediterranean Sea. And that little tiny red dot, can you see it? It's so small we had to draw an arrow next to it represents Israel. So just keep that map in mind. And what the world is saying is if Israel just gave up a little bit more, things would work out. They're never going to show you this map, by the way, on on CNN or any other cable network because the narrative is Israel is an oppressor. Israel has to give up more land. And if Israel gives up more land, then we're going to have peace. And the whole thing is just blown out of the water by just looking at geography. I mean, what land? That little tiny speck? Giving that up is going to cause world peace? So as Israel is seeking peace, I mean, you you would seek peace too. If your back was up against the Mediterranean Sea and you were surrounded by Islamic dictatorships, perpetually threatening to drive you into the Mediterranean Sea as the Hamas charter that caused the problems coming from Gaza specifically states, you would be reaching out to anyone and anything for peace if you were tiny Israel living in that part of the world. And part of the desire for peace will be some sort of treaty And part of that treaty, I'm convinced, will be some kind of allowance if the Jews give up this or that, then we'll allow you to rebuild your temple. And I'm thinking that's how the temple, the third temple, is going to come into existence. I don't know that for sure. It's just some educated speculation on my part. But the stage is being set for that rebuilt temple. You have the rebirth of Israel, 1948. You have Israel looking for some sort of peace deal with anybody that will guarantee their survival and allow them to rebuild their temple. And then number three, there's a tremendous desire amongst the Jewish people to rebuild temple number three. And not just to rebuild temple number three, but to restore the animal sacrifices in the temple. So is it true that the Jewish people have such a desire? Well, that, that's not a hard question to answer because when you go to Jerusalem, I don't know if I'd recommend you go there like next weekend, but when things settle down there, and they, and they will most likely, and you take your trip to Jerusalem, and you really should go to Israel if you've never been because you're going to be ruling and reigning there for a thousand years anyway. So you might as well go over and get your real estate claimed and all that kind of stuff. But when you go to Jerusalem, one of the places they take you is something called the Temple Institute. And it's a really fascinating place to walk through. There's my wife and myself, uh, Beauty and the Beast as I call it. (laughs) 
in front of the Temple Institute, and you can go in there, and they'll just give you a whole tour of what Temple Number Three is going to look like. So it's sort of um, an eerie thing walking through that set of exhibits there in Jerusalem, a whole building set up to do this, because as you're going through, you recognize that you're dealing with people that are not functioning with the light of the New Testament. I mean, Israel, except for individual, some individual Jews, is a Christ-rejecting nation at this point. They won't always be, but they are today. So it would be like reading the Bible and just stopping at Malachi and not having the 27 New Testament books. So they think restoring animal sacrifices is mandated by what the Old Testament says. And they don't call it the Old Testament because they don't accept the New Testament. They call it Tanakh or Hebrew Bible. And so they think, as you're walking through this, that they're putting this temple and animal sacrificial system together to fulfill their understanding of Hebrew Bible. When in reality, as a Christian, you're walking through there and you're saying these people are actually building a temple for the Antichrist and don't realize it. And so it's a very interesting psychological thing that goes on as you kind of walk through here. But they have several exhibits set up, uh, not the least of which is a caricature of what Temple Number 3 is going to look like. There is a giant menorah there, you see it to the left, made of pure gold. I can't remember the weight of it, but the weight is astronomical where it took uh, a real source of energy to move that from the outside into the Temple Institute. But it's a menorah, and you know the significance of the menorah from Hanukkah and what happened under Antiochus Epiphanes. But this is a mindset within Judaism that we are going to rebuild Temple Number 3. And a lot of them want Temple Number 3 built because they see it as this is a way to maintain our culture. Uh, one of the things that's happened, and you can see this in the Randall Price, Thomas Ice, Ready to Rebuild book, is there is sort of a fear amongst the older Jews concerning the fact that the younger Jews are intermarrying with Gentiles. And they don't really want that. These older Jews don't want to see that happen because they think if we this trend keeps happening, we're going to lose our culture. We're going to lose our identity. Now, they're not going to lose their culture because they haven't lost their culture for 2,000 years because God has preserved them. But they think, oh, my goodness, we're going to lose our culture and our identity. We've got to do something of a religious orientation to maintain our culture I know what we'll do. We'll rebuild temple number three. And so these are common headlines now. Uh, these are the kinds of things that we talk about on our, our podcast, Pastor's Point of View, regularly. But these are headlines I used to never see. But now they're in the newspaper almost daily. I mean, here's something from Israel 365 News the beginning of last year, Temple Mount activists petitioned Ben Gavir to permit 
Passover sacrifice. This shall be to you of one of remembrance. You shall celebrate it. Notice the quote from the Old Testament. You shall celebrate it as a festival to Hashim throughout the ages. You shall celebrate it as an institution for all time. Uh, here's another headline. Um, Jew- Jewish visits to Temple Mount. And this, again, comes from the beginning of last year. Jewish visits to the Temple Mount break modern record and expose a religious divide. And it quotes leadership within Israel saying, we're fighting for Jews, Christians, and peoples of all faith to be able to visit and freely pray at the Temple Mount. Now, the Bible says, um, without a vision, the people perish. And I'm here to tell you that the vision for Temple Number 3 exists. The actual construction of it doesn't exist yet, but the vision exists. And of course, you know, as you know, the big problem is the uh, Dome of the Rock in Islam that the Muslims built over the Temple Mount. And so the idea is, well, if the Jews start rebuilding Temple Number 3, what are they going to do with that giant pagan uh, sentiment to Islam. Well, some say it has to be moved. And I wouldn't recommend that. You'll probably start World War III if you do that. Different archaeologists have different perspectives on this. There is a perspective that says the Solomonic Temple stood underneath the Dome of the Rock. Another perspective says, no, it didn't stand under the Dome of the Rock. It was over uh, slightly in a different area. And I'm not really sure. I'm not an expert on it. I'm not sure which archaeologist is is right. Um, someone to ask on this would be Dr. Randall Price. And we're going to have a chance to, he's going to be in town. We're going to have a chance to interview him on our podcast, uh, which will drop on Friday. And this is a question I'll probably ask him. But some way, somehow, and I'm not sure exactly how it's going to happen, either that dome of the rock has to be moved, or maybe the Temple Mount is in a different area, and you're going to have both the dome of the rock and the Temple Mount existing side by side. That's kind of my view as to where I think things are headed. And who's going to negotiate that one? The only one that could pull that off is the Antichrist himself. So that may be part of this peace treaty that they're going to get with the Antichrist, um, allowing this Temple Mount to be rebuilt next to the functioning Dome of the Rock. Is it? Do I know for certain it's going to happen that way? No, I don't. That's just more educated speculation on my part. But you have to understand that you're living in a world where the unbelieving Jews are saying, we will rebuild this temple. We're ready to rebuild. Now, I've been to Jerusalem, I think, five times, if I got that right. And we've gone through that Temple Mount Institute several times. And as you're going through there, what they used to say back in the 90s is, we're waiting for our Messiah to rebuild this temple. 
Now, who is their Messiah? Their Messiah is going to end up being the Antichrist. They're going to be deceived by him for three and a half years. We're waiting for our Messiah to rebuild this temple. And then I noticed in recent trips to Jerusalem that they switched their language around. They don't, they no longer say we're waiting for our Messiah to rebuild this temple. What they now say is we need to rebuild this temple so our Messiah can come. Which is a totally different set, totally different set of priorities. And one of the things that will be functioning in this temple when it's rebuilt is animal sacrifices. How do I know that? Because the Antichrist will stop animal sacrifices in the temple, Daniel 9.27. You can't do that without a temple and functioning animal sacrifices. Are you with me on that? Which is exactly what Antiochus Epiphanes, a prefigurement of all of these things, did. Daniel predicted it in Daniel 11.31. Forces from him will arise desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will set up, that's the image, the abomination of desolation. So Antiochus did two things. He set up an image of Zeus in temple number two, and he put an end to the Jewish sacrificial system. So Antiochus is a prefigurement of what the future Antichrist will do. And Daniel says future Antichrist will do the exact same thing. He will make a firm covenant with the many, that's Israel. And many is used as a synonym for Israel in Daniel 11.33. He, Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That's a unit of seven, seven years in this case. But in the middle of the week... That's the final seven years, three and a half years into it. He will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. Now, you cannot put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering unless you have a temple in which to put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And you can't put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering unless animal sacrifices are occurring again in the temple. And this could very well be the thing that will turn the world aggressively against Israel, these animal sacrifices. Can you imagine what the uh, animal activist type groups are going to think about this? I mean, all these people that want to ban meat and all this, all this stuff. Let's abort the babies and save the animals mindset. Um, you, you could see how hysterical they're going to get once the Jews roll out this temple and start sacrificing animals in the temple once again, whereas they think they're doing it in fulfillment of what Hebrew Bible says. So don't just look for the rebuilt temple. Look for movements towards restoring the animal sacrifices. And this is where the red heifer comes in to the picture. What is the red heifer? The red heifer you'll see in Numbers 19. It is a animal that must be genetically pure. If it has one stray hair, it's disqualified. 
And Numbers 19 indicates that the ashes of the red heifer, meaning the ashes coming from the remains of the sacrificed red heifer, are going to be used, Numbers 19, to dedicate the tabernacle. So if you don't have a qualified red heifer, you don't have a dedication for the tabernacle. And Israel is following that same principle relative to this coming third temple. They believe that the third temple is coming and we have to have a ashes of the red heifer to rededicate temple number three. So the ashes of the red heifer is a prerequisite for temple number three because it's necessary to dedicate temple number three, albeit numbers 13, uh, excuse me, numbers 19. So here is a recent headline from All Israel News, August 2023, last year. It reads, almost everything is ready for the third temple, claims Israeli TV report about red heifers brought to Israel last year. Arrival of five red heifers, and there's actual footage that you can watch where they're, you know, kind of let out after being on a plane and moving, you know, on into Israel to be bred, to be watched carefully. It says all five red heifers continue to cause excitement and consternation in the Jewish state. Now, why does it cause excitement? Because, oh my goodness, they're getting close to temple number three. Because they're putting into uh, the works here, into process, the dedication of the right animal that has to exist as a prerequisite for temple number three. All of this is a prerequisite for temple number three. Why would it cause consternation? Because the, the, because the Muslims hate this. Because every time Israel moves in this direction, they see it as a threat to, you know, the mosque, the Dome of the Rock, that they believe that they have built over the Temple Mount before the nation of Israel was reborn in 1948. So every time Israel moves in this direction, there's excitement, and at the same time there's consternation. But these red heifers are very interesting. You know where they're bred? They're bred right here in Texas. Rockwall, Texas, uh, not too far from the Dallas area. And so they're a special kind of animal. They, they think that they're genetically pure. They're shipped over to Israel trying to figure out, and they have to, it's like a waiting game. Are there any stray hairs? If not, they could qualify. And then if these aren't the right ones, maybe they are. Maybe they can be used to breed the future red heifer. So the fact that they're even talking about this, I mean, they weren't talking like this 40, 50 years ago. The fact that they're even having this discussion and having this conversation, it shows you how close we are to temple number three. So as the saying goes, when you see the Christmas lights, and Santa Claus in the department store, you know that Thanksgiving is near, right? <laughs> Just think about it for a second. I know it's early. 
But as you see all of these things coming together, you say to yourself, wow, the Lord is really setting the stage for the seven-year tribulation period. We're not in the tribulation period, but certainly the stage is being set. And if the rapture of the church comes before the tribulation period even begins, then the rapture is coming even faster. So I look at that and I say to the Lord, Lord, I don't want to waste 2024, assuming I get to live out my full life expectancy on fleshly pursuits. Uh, I want to focus my life on something that's going to stand the test of time. Evangelism, taking church seriously. Of course, I have to take church seriously because I'm the pastor. It's a great job, by the way. I get paid to be good. Everyone else in the church is good for nothing, right? So that's a Howard Hendricks joke. Sorry about that. Taking church seriously, living the consecrated lifestyle, not making excuses for wandering back into the sin nature. I want to live that way because I see these things happening so quickly. And I'm not going to get weird and start setting dates and all of this kind of stuff because the Bible doesn't give you dates. But it does give you general principles prophetically to look at. And always they're there to have some sort of purifying effect on our lives. So look for the red heifer. Look for temple number three coming. Look for a restoration of animal sacrifices all things indicating that the seven-year tribulation period is coming even faster. And then you throw into the mix all the other prophetic signs. You know, the trend towards world government. You know, really, I don't know if I should say this, but I'll say it anyway. This whole election that's coming up, to me that's really the issue. I mean, are we going to be part of the new world order, the family of nations, or are we going to be an independent, sovereign country? Um, and the fact that that, that uh, is a touchstone in an election shows you that we're moving fast into global governance. And people, even the unsaved world, they, they don't like it. They see a threat to it. And there's a political reaction against it. And they have a tendency to get behind candidates that will speak against it. Um, so even this sort of political division that we're in right now, uh, even this whole uh, movement into this cashless system, you should know a little bit about central bank digital currencies. It's on the White House Website. It's not, not conspiracy theory. The movement into moving us out of cash into digitizing all transactions as a pretext for a social credit score system. Because as long as you're doing your transactions in cash, the, the state really doesn't know what you're doing. But once everything becomes electronic and digitized, is the moment I have a paper trail, you have a paper trail. They know what your values are, what kind of books you read, <laughs> what kind of causes you get behind. And based on that, you'll be assigned a score. 
if your score is a good score because you're woke, then life opens up to you electronically. You get the loan for your business that you need. You put your kids in the best schools. But if you start to do things that are unwoke, like you don't recycle or whatever, you go to Sugarland Bible Church, you know, that kind of stuff, your store, your score starts to go down. And as your score goes down, your opportunities in life shrink. And you're sort of put in an electronic concentration camp. You can't get passport privileges. You can't travel. Oh, come on, Pastor. When did you get off on all these conspiracy theories? Folks, this is not conspiracy theory. The social credit score system is in use as I speak right now in China. It's a fact. You have to wonder at some point, how does the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, how does it keep track and control of its giant population? How can they do that? Answer, social credit score system. So as the globalists plot world dominion, they love all this technology. I mean, I love it too to some extent because it allows us at Sugarland Bible Church to get our voice heard in another part of the world that would never know about us. But what can be used for good can also be used for evil. The, the whole transition into the cashless system, the whole transition into sources of energy where you're not independent, the war on a wood-burning stove. Why declare war on a wood-burning stove? That's weird. We had, as you probably know, several visitors from Canada last week. Uh, our family had a chance to go out to lunch with them afterward, and they told me that electric cars will be mandated. It's not a discussion anymore. And they showed me all the news articles and everything else. Will be mandated in Canada by 2035. No more gas-powered cars. Everything is electric. Why are we being pushed in that direction? Well, if you're one of the Canadian truckers that didn't like what Justin Trudeau was doing with overly aggressive mandates. And I'm trying to choose my words very carefully as I talk because everything you put now online, there's a transcript that's immediately created. And if you say the wrong thing, they take you off, they they take your video off from being online. It's happened to little old me um, twice already. So as I'm stumbling for words, don't think I'm having a stroke up here or something. (laughs) I'm thinking what I'm saying before I say it so we don't get unnecessarily censored. But what a great way to shut down the... Canadian truckers, the, the patriots in Canada that were saying, no, we don't like Canadian overreach. Well, they shut them down through the banking system. That should tell you something. But what a great way to shut, shut them down by you're no longer in a gas-powered vehicle anymore. You're in an electrical car. And rationing, as these very nice people all explain to us, is coming to Canada because of these crazy changes that are happening there. And 
the rationing, very sadly, is not due to some unknown cause inflicted upon humanity. It's things we're doing to our, it's, it's things our own government is doing to us. So the movement into sources of energy where you're dependent on the state. Uh, the movement into the CBDCs. The, the movement into T-Mobile. Where now it's a policy, and look it up on the T-Mobile website. It's there for you to read. Where now your texts are going to be policed. And if you say the wrong kinds of things, then you're given a fine. And there's kind of a two-tiered, there's like a three-tiered system. If you fall into this category, you get one fine. If you fall into a greater category, you get a greater fine. If you fall into the greatest category, you get the greatest fine. Um, And you say, well, what are they trying to police? Well, at first it looks reasonable. They're, They're trying to police things that are illegal, you know, fishing, as they call it, these kinds of things. But then you start reading between the lines and you'll see the words, we're going to police hate speech. And they don't put that at the top of the document. They sort of put it kind of in the middle, hate speech. Well, what, what's hate speech? Um, if I say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but by me. For I'm exclusive of all other groups other than Jesus. Is that hate speech? See, they get to define what hate speech is. Um, what if I what if I say something negative against Islam? You know, that's hate speech. What if I say something political in a text? And not to get too far into politics, but there is some TDS out there. Uh, some Trump derangement syndrome, as it's called. I'm not taking a position on the Republican primary. I'm just telling you the climate that we're in, where you post something in favor of one political candidate and someone that receives your text is sort of triggered by that. Well, is that hate speech? And all of this is possible because of the technology that we have. And eventually all of it is going to be sort of amalgamated into some kind of social credit score system which will be used to monitor the behavior of people. Now, what am I trying to do here? Am I trying to scare everybody to death? No. I'm just trying to say, Christian, at some point you have to wake up and understand the season that you're living in. Something that your Bible said would come. The social credit system, I can't think of a more wonderful description than the mark of the beast system that's described in your Bible in Revelation 13, verses 16 through 18. So that kind of thing is coming together, not in isolation of the temple and the things in Israel. The key word here is convergence. These signs are all coming together in unison. These signs are all coming together in tandem. These signs are all coming together in harmony. And the super sign for the last days is Israel. You always look at Israel. 
But after you look at Israel, you look at all the other signs that God said would usurp the earth before he returned. These sort of mark of the beast signs, one world government signs, globalism signs. And this doesn't mean that you get under your bed covers scared out of your mind. Because greater is he that's in you than what? He that's in the world. You're on the right side. But you just start to live your life in a more careful, circumspective, deliberative manner. And you start to say to yourself, you know, I'm not going to be here forever. This, this world is not my home. My home is in the Father's house. And then it'll be in the Millennial Kingdom. And after that, it'll be in the eternal state. So I want to start living for values that are reflective of eternity rather than the temporal things of the world. This is why God has given us this tremendous gift of Bible prophecy to change the way we live. And only He could give it because only He knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. That's why the things happening in the world today look so eerily similar to Bible prophecy passages. So, with all of that being said, let's go back to 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. Now watch this last part. Displaying himself as being God. So part of the desecration of the temple will not just be a statue of the Antichrist. It will not just be an end to animal sacrifices. It will be the Antichrist going into the temple and saying, I am God. Not I am like God, but I am God. Now, has someone ever done that before? Yes. This was Lucifer's first sin, right? And rebellion. Where Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15, records what was going through Lucifer's mind as a cherub, a high-ranking angel. When he was created, this is why Lucifer became Satan and was kicked out of heaven. Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart. In other words, this was what was in Lucifer's heart before he said anything. That caused his removal from heaven. God is always looking at the heart, right? What does 1 Samuel 16, verse 7 say? Man looks at the outer. God looks at the heart. So what was Lucifer saying in his heart? I, he's got a bad case of the eyes, by the way. He's got good self-esteem, Lucifer does. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. And here's the clincher. 
I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I, fifth I, will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. What pushed the scale is Lucifer in Isaiah 14 and verse 14 said, Not only will I ascend above the heights of the clouds. Now, clouds in the Bible is God's glory. He's basically wanting God's glory. Not only will I ascend above the heights of the clouds, but I will make myself like the Most High. And God says that's enough. And he lost his position in the heavenlies. So Lucifer is thrown down to the earth. And then he sees Adam and Eve in Eden. And he uses five tactics in Genesis 3. But what does he do in the fourth tactic? He offers them wisdom without submission to God. Because you can be God yourself. Genesis chapter 3 verse 5. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, is it any surprise that Satan's man of the hour, the Antichrist, would say the exact same thing? That, w- that he would display himself in temple number three as being God. How many religions out there teach that you can become God? You ever thought about that? A lot of them. Mormons teach you can become a God and have your own planet. Shirley MacLaine, one of the early promoters here in the United States of the New Age movement, in her book, Out on a Limb, Actually, I think there's a movie about it. You can see her out, arms outstretched, standing uh, on Malibu Beach, by the way, not too far from where I grew up, with her hands in the air, saying over and over again, I am God, chanting it over and over again. I am God. I am God. In other words, in New Age theology, you kind of evolve into Godhood. So this is the mindset of many, many religions. They think they can become God. And so my point is when the beast goes into the temple and displays himself as God, everybody's going to say, thumbs up. That's what we're all trying to do. We're all trying to be God. So the beast saying it would be no big deal. You follow? This is why the world is not going to be shocked by this sin. Because by this time, they'll, they'll know nothing about the Bible. We threw that out of the schools a long time ago. People don't know anything about the Bible. They don't know Isaiah 14, 14. They don't know Genesis 3, verse 5. They don't know that this is the very lie that unseated Lucifer and then unseated Adam and Eve over their positions of rulership over the earth. They don't know that history. So it really isn't blasphemous or offensive at all. It fits with the culture of the day. Because, by the way, when they threw the Bible and prayer out of the schools in 1963, the Supreme Court did. By the way, you didn't vote on that. 
Supreme Court did that. People say, well, I'm glad the schools aren't religious anymore. Are you kidding me? The Supreme Court in 1963 did not ban religion from the schools. They swapped religions. They exchanged them. And the religion of the Bible, the religion of Jesus Christ, the truth that you know was pushed out. Nature abhors a vacuum. And in its place rushed in the doctrine of humanism, which deifies man. Humanism is now, and it has been for several decades, the state-sponsored religion of the United States of America. The public schools are as religious as they've ever been, but it is the deification of man in a doctrine called humanism which is the worship of self. The humanists even have their own doctrinal statement. <laughs> I'd encourage you to read them. They're not long. One was written in 1933. The second one was written in 1973. Signed by a lot of famous people, by the way, like Isaac Asimov, the science fiction writer. Signed by a guy named Lester, let's see if you recognize this name, Lester Mondale. Right? The brother of the former vice president, Walter Mondale. Because you might remember in the 70s, they said of Jimmy Carter, unlike Ronald Reagan, you're not religious. And Jimmy Carter said, are you kidding? I'm extremely religious. And my vice president, Walter Mondale, he's extremely religious. And guess what? Jimmy Carter was right. Walter Mondale was extremely religious. It just wasn't the religion of Scripture. It was the religion of humanism. And there was another one written in, in 2000 for the in commemoration of the year 2000. They're not long reads, but they lay out their doctrines of what they believe just like you would read the Sugarland Bible Church doctrinal statement. What does Sugarland Bible Church believe? Well, it's on, online. We've got a doctrinal statement. What do the humanists believe? It's online. They've got a doctrinal statement. It's just I can't get into the public schools to teach my doctrine because of what the Supreme Court did in 1963. But humanists teach their values to our kids 24-7. Humanists believe, and guess what? I've got a yellow light up there, so you'll have to wait till next week to learn what humanists believe. (laughs) But my point in bringing all of this up is the culture or the ethos has changed so that when the beast goes into the temple and says, I am God, it will seem rational to people. It will seem logical. Because the Bible says there is a way that seems right to a man, but ends in what? Ends in death. And that's what the world is about to see through this desecration of the temple. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your prophetic words, sometimes scary truths, but necessary truths to not intimidate us, but to help us to think carefully about what really matters. So I pray you'll continue to do this work in our hearts. Be with us as we... 
study this morning the book of Genesis. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, Happy mini-intermission.